You're listening to the PK Experience Podcast, where I tap into the minds of today's impact players. And before I introduce today's guest, I wanted to first and foremost thank you for being a listener. I am steadily growing this audience, and uh, I'm getting a lot of really great feedback, and I really appreciate you listening. And for those who have subscribed, I really appreciate it. If you haven't yet, if you could take a moment and download the podcast on your iTunes podcast app and leave a comment and a review on the iTunes podcast app. That would be fantastic. That's really helpful for me to help grow this audience and get more exposure and let other people know these amazing individuals that I've had the pleasure of interviewing and talking with. Um, And I also wanted to let you know that I've just uh, turned on a donation page. Uh, I'm trying to keep this ad-free, this entire platform ad-free, and but the cost of creating these is steadily going up. Uh, it's about hundreds, it's hundreds of dollars per episode for me to put these out, and I've been doing it now for almost two years, and uh, would like to keep this ad-free, but it's taking more and more of my time, which I really love doing. I love talking to these incredible people and asking them questions and, and getting into their mindsets, and then obviously sharing that with you, and um, if you could support me in that way, that would be amazing. It really is humbling to um, to get the feedback and the support from you all. So if you go to my website at pkexperience.com, you can click on the donate button there and I've got a little information for you if you're interested in doing that. And again, uh, thank you in advance for your consideration on that. Uh, that said, let me tell you about today's guest. Today's guest is named Jason Botts. He's a former Major League Baseball player. He played professionally for 15 seasons and for several Major League Baseball teams. He now, though, has since retired and created a coaching and online training company called Peak State, where he uses a very unique approach to helping the athletes visualize their desired outcomes, and he's had a lot of really amazing success with that. And it was a real pleasure to sit down and get into his mindset and uh, how he approaches achieving excellence. He's got another program called Like a Beast, which is helping young athletes you know, play to their fullest potential. And I have been following Jason for a while now on social media, and I've gotten to meet him and talk to him and get to know him a little bit better. He, his heart is so in the right place at helping young athletes and, you know, even seasoned athletes as well, really shift their mindsets so that they can perform at their peak levels. It was a real pleasure to speak with him. And we actually, the, the conversation, uh, sort of evolved into, well, you know, what? I'm not going to actually say it. It's, it's interesting where this conversation went to is really uh, very enlightening to speak to Jason on, on the subject matters that we got into. So I'm going to leave it at that uh, and get this intro over with so you can listen to the, to the episode. Here I am with Jason Botts. All right. I'm here with Jason Botts. Jason, thanks so much for joining the call, man. Absolutely. My pleasure, Peter. Yeah, it's, uh, I've, I'm excited to talk to you. I, I know you're on fire right now. I, you and I are in a very similar uh, focus in life, just wanting to cultivate better leaders, better boys, better men, uh, and then, of course, better women in the, in the process of that. So um, I am excited to talk to you. I know that you've had uh, been through a lot. I, I've been doing a little bit of research, and I've I'm like, whoa, this is, uh, I didn't realize all of that was happening underneath the surface, but um, we human beings are pretty good at putting on a facade, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of masks that we can wear. A lot of masks. So um, for those that don't know who you are, um, why don't you just give a brief background of who you are and where you're at today, and we'll kind of dive in to figure it all out. <laughs> 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was a former Major League Baseball player, former professional player for 15 years. And uh, I'm sure part of the stories of my uh, rather tough transition out of the game and out of that identity uh, will come up at some part. But, um, you know, through that process of getting out of the game and, um, you know, really even halfway through my career, felt like the seed was planted to, uh, you know, be a coach in some form, some type of life coach or something. And uh, which was interesting because I went through so much transitioning out. But going through that, going through the healing process of that, through the trainings, um, you know, I went and started a kind of a high performance uh, coaching business with athletes. So that's been in the works now for four and a half years with Jason Botts Peak State. And, you know, over the last year, really expanding um, a lot of that core stuff to working with men, working with men and women in relationships. And, uh, you know, that company now is Power and Truth, which I co-created, co-founded with uh, my girlfriend, Sarah Love. Oh, nice. That's a great name. <laughs> great name. Great name. It's <laughs> a perfect name. Um, for <laughs> so you, where did you grow up? Uh, in the middle of nowhere, California. Okay. Um, a lot of people don't, uh, a lot of people don't realize how much of nowhere there is in California. <laughs> There's a lot of nowhere. <laughs> There's a lot of nowhere uh, out there. Yeah. So Paso Robles is, uh, it's almost halfway. It's almost exactly in between Los Angeles and San Francisco. Okay. Um, you know, we refer to it as the central coast. Um, you know, LA or San Fran, they're three hours, three and a half hours away, north or south. And that's uh, a very small town, maybe 20, 30,000 people. Every additional town, I think if you go south, there's a town every like 10 minutes away. If you go north, it's like 45 minutes before you get to the next town. Hmm. And that's uh, a beautiful, beautiful area, but it's tough to get to. Um, took the boys back there a couple of weeks ago for spring break. It was absolutely beautiful. But the travel day from Florida was just uh, – it was a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, wrangling kids is not uh, for those that don't have kids. They have no idea how long it takes just to just to get freaking shoes on and out the door, man. Especially with with more than one. It's, no, like, now that you mention it, you know, one of them, the, the my seven year old boys are nine and seven, and the seven year old he wanted flip flops. He's been dying for flip flops, <laughs> and so he bought flip flops in the uh, at the airport and changed into them. But then we were we were running behind on our connection and the flip-flops kept falling off and so at one point i think i grabbed him and carried him picked up the sandals and we went in a, in a fast-paced walk to make sure that we got on a little tram thingy and got to the next uh, terminal but that's great you gotta you gotta do what you gotta do you know? <laughs> um so uh so you're growing up in california um how did you was baseball give, give me an idea as to like when the dream began because I think all, all boys that are into baseball, all, you know, we all have the dream of playing it in the big leagues. Um, you actually did it, but when did that begin for you and, and walk us through that? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, just like all kids, you, you hear about it and other people talk about it at an early age, whether it was six, seven years old for me. Um, I actually grew up on a ranch at the time. I think we moved into town about that age or seven or eight. And that was the first time I actually got to start playing baseball. And because um, we were way out of town at the time. And um, you had those boyhood dreams at the very beginning, and I had those. And uh, I don't think <clears throat> until, you know, growing up, I was kind of a big kid. I was kind of good. Um, but I also was very aware that I live in this small town in this great big country and, and the world where it's like the best of the best that go on and, and make it professionally and, and the best of those best that go on to the major leagues. And I was really aware of that at a young age. So I think 
I love playing the game. I didn't really have too many uh, goals around actually making it to the major leagues until I was 14 or 15, and I had a huge growth spurt. Um, some of my physical skills really took off, and I really began to separate myself. And uh, it was interesting, though, because the mindset piece really came into play at 15. And I remember the first day I got a uh, a what we call like an information card from a major league scout. And you know, it was very, very basic stuff at that time, just your, your height, your weight, your, your address so they can keep uh, track of you. But I remember sitting down at my desk uh, in my room that night and really making a decision and really committing myself that I really want to go for this. Hmm. And uh, you know, the idea of mindset and the mental game really came to me because I felt like even though I had some skills, I had some size, um, I was really going to have to maximize it all in order to make that happen. And um, you know, that's been really my lifelong passion is around high performance mindset, um, the mental game when it came to baseball. And so it really started at an early age for me, 15. And um, yeah, so I'd say 15 was when I made a real decision where I, I like to say, you know, I took that boyhood dream of being uh, a major leaguer and I made it an actual goal. Okay. To do it. That's when things really started moving. Did you have, uh, did your father play or did you have other relatives that were, were in or? No, okay. not at all. My dad, I'm, so I'm six foot seven on a good day. Right. Uh, <laughs> I, still have good, I still have some good days, which was actually interesting because people kind of fight me on that. But um, I actually <clears throat> lied about my height for years as a baseball player. Cause at that time I thought six foot seven when I was 15, 16 would be considered a, uh, a negative being too tall to be a baseball player. Really? So on all the information cards, I'd always write out six foot five. Oh, interesting. And, um, you know, everyone usually gives themselves two more inches. I was giving myself taking way oh. too inches. But, um, yeah, my dad, he's, he's 5'10 on a good day. What? Really? <laughs> yeah. Where do you get uh, your size from? Mom's maybe some family? generations past is what they like to say. Wow. Um, but he, you know, he might have played a little football in high school, but he was a uh, rancher, a farmer, country boy. Um, and, uh, you know, my parents, they separated when I was really young too, seven, eight years old. Um, so dad was always just kind of real laid back with it. Um, mom had a real passion for the game. She's more probably the, the athletic gene part of it. Okay. Uh, very great athlete, loved baseball, loved football. That was from her father. And, um, you know, they were huge giants and Niner fans. That's how I grew up in that area. So the, uh, where it came from and it was just an, an interesting part of the story too because it was the middle of nowhere a small town and um you know there was no models no examples at the time i remember being told in high school that you know it was just a dream i should give it up from people within the family from people within my school yeah. i think when i when i had made it to the major leagues it had been 84 years since someone from that town had made it back in like the 20s Right. Um, I better, we got to start clarifying through the 1920s because I right. started to get upon us. I know, it's weird, isn't it? <laughs> you know, 84 years uh, since someone had gone to the major leagues. I think at one point I got told by a counselor in high school that I had a better chance of becoming an astronaut. Um, <laughs> more that, astronauts came out of your, your Yeah, area. more astronauts came out than uh, professional athletes. That's funny. So, um, yeah, it was, uh, it, was, it was always inside of me, and it took me a long time to really own that, that that's what I wanted, that's what I was going to go for. And um, so when I hear people make those claims, I just had a, a conversation with a 16-year-old kid last night, and um, just to hear him be like, I want to be a major leaguer, I want to be a great major leaguer. 
And uh, there's a lot of things I had to say about that at that time, but it was just to hear someone own it at such a great age. It gets me so excited to hear that. Yeah, that's so cool. Um, so, so you started to get scouted, I guess, a little bit. Where did you go to college? I actually went to a junior college down in LA. Okay. Um, I did. I got drafted out of high school very, very low. They wanted me. There's different rules back then. Um, this rule doesn't exist anymore. But back uh, 15, 20 years ago, and a lot longer before that, they used to do something called a draft and follow. It means that they could, uh, or major league organization could draft you and then send you to a junior college and keep your rights for the whole year. Um, normally, if you get drafted out of high school, your their rights to you end the moment you step inside a classroom hmm. at a university. Okay. And uh, so I turned down the one scholarship at my local uh, school. It was about 30 minutes down the road. And I turned that down to go to a junior college down in L.A., which I thought might give me better exposure, be better talent. The rules are different for junior colleges. You get to play like through the fall and the winter and the spring in California. You're talking about playing 80 to 100 games in terms of your development. When you're at, you know, the NCAA restrictions, you know, you have like six weeks in the fall. I don't have no idea how accurate that is anymore, but it was like you had a short portion to play during the fall and then you had your spring season. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of rules around not being able to work with the coaches and do that stuff certain times a year. So, um, you know, I made the decision to go to a junior college to really develop my baseball game. Gotcha. Went there for a year. The team that drafted me out of high school didn't, they chose not to sign me, got drafted by the Rangers. They wanted me to go back for another year. And uh, before that next draft, um, you know, made the decision, they offered me a contract and uh, turned down another scholarship offer to the, the dream school that I had for many, many years, the University of Southern California, and um, got those offers both the same day and said no to the USC and uh, went for it with uh, the professional career. What, what is that like? I mean, I... <clears throat> Cause you're like, you mentioned earlier, like that's, you're the 1% of the 1% that, that even gets a serious look. Um, and you know, to have had that dream materialize for you, like walk us through what that was for you. And then, and then afterwards, like the type of pressure and what kind of uh, world that puts you into. Yeah. I think um, a couple of different things come to mind. One is here you are as 18, 19 year old kid. I was, I'm young for, I was young for my grade. So I graduated at 17. So two years of college, I was 19 when I signed professionally. And do you and, get money when you sign then? Yeah. Okay. So you're, and, you're getting a decent amount of money at a fairly young age. You're getting a little bit of money. And, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, it was, it was a lot of money for me at the time. Right. My background. Um, it was definitely nothing crazy or extravagant. Um, my, 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 my way, my way of thinking was how am I going to buy a vehicle with this? And right. uh, that was about the extent of it. <laughs> and uh, so <laughs> it wasn't no setup for life in any, any fashion or form. But I just remember thinking how 18, 19, you're in college, you're getting noticed, you're getting um, attention from professional scouts and you're starting to feel like this dream of, of being a professional and being a major leaguer is so close. Then you sign your professional contract and I got shipped uh, two days later to Port Charlotte, Florida, and um, which was where the spring training facilities used to be for the Texas Rangers. Now they're in Arizona, but you know, it was a very old place. Um, it's kind of the middle of nowhere, Florida, in a way. And um, 
I remember showing up to the extended spring training and, and here you have um, the rosters for every minor league team in that organization. So a lot of people don't know, but you have your major league team and then you have like six or seven minor league teams for each organization. So like the St. Louis Cardinals, you know, they have triple A, double A, high A, low A, advanced rookie, low level rookie. And sometimes there's another team in there as well. Yeah. I just remember going from feeling so close to all my dreams happening of being a major leaguer to the next day of actually taking a step forward and realizing like there's six first basemen, there's 20 outfielders all ahead of me. And that was a very humbling experience. But to really take a look at that and just know that all I need to worry about is today, go out and give everything I have today, do the extra work, um, trust myself and, and let it unfold. But, um, you know, I took it one year at a time and was able to go through the ranks and um, it'll come to me what the second part of that question that you asked was, because I thought it was really important too. Uh, it, um, it was about I, the pressure. Yeah. The pressure of it. And that's, that was something I, I definitely love sharing and talking about it too, because, you know, for my career, I was blessed to have this 15 years um, to be a professional player and to live that dream. And uh, it's been interesting because I've had so many other conversations over the last couple of years with a lot of guys who, had similar careers. I, I would say that they have even, um, they had many more years in the major leagues, but you know, there's definitely uh, two types of players. Do I still have you? Cause I got something popping up weird on my screen. Yeah. There you I, are. I'm reading you. Okay. We're good. You know, there's, there's two types of players at the, even at the major league level, let alone professional levels, but it's like, you have the guys who signed the multi-year contracts and you know, it's guaranteed money. It's pretty much guaranteed playing time. They can go out there and just show up. Um, many of them are very driven still, but you, there's a, there's a relaxation to it where they, they really, everything's taken care of. They're going to be in the lineup for however long their contract is. Right. And there's the other guys, which I filmed the, the, uh, the category where for 15 years, like my job felt like it was on the line every single day, every day. Wow. And it was like, and it was funny because it wasn't until I, I talked to one of my really good friends who lives in the same area where we just moved to, but he played nine years in the major leagues as a fourth outfielder. And, um, you know, he's, he made the comment, he's like, after he retired, because we're having this conversation, um, and he's like, he's like, I finally feel like I can breathe, <laughs> like, like I can take a breath. And he's like, for nine years, I feel like I can never take a breath because wow. today I had to get the job done to make sure I was, I was there tomorrow. And I was like, man, I, I can relate. Like, I felt that same way, whether it was in the major leagues, whether it was in, in um, uh, after I had the major leagues going to Japan and playing for a couple of years, playing a lot of triple A ball after that, playing a lot of uh, independent leagues or, um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, for the guys who kind of get stuck in the minors, there's a lot of great opportunities financially to go play um, during the summers and the winters in some of the Latin American countries, which I did quite a bit. And um, in those environments, you really can't take a breath because they'll get rid of you in a heartbeat. Yeah. Um, there was times where I was let go and released, even though I was the best hitter on the team because they felt like they could bring someone else in who could hit similar, but pay him half as much money. Hmm. And, um, you know, it's just a, a crazy business to be involved in. And, um, that's, that's one of the things I have fun talking about was I didn't feel like I took a breath for 15 years. My goodness. Yeah. You know, most people think of a professional athlete as the, you know, the franchise player that, yeah, gets the huge bonus. You, those yeah. are the ones that make the headlines, but you forget like that's, that's just the tiny surface of most of the players that play that. Yeah. You're, yeah, I can't even imagine how difficult and how much stress it was that that would be for you. Um, I actually had uh, former NFL player Evan Britton on my program not too long ago, and he talked about I, I came across him 
on the Netflix documentary, Take Your Pills. And he was talking about how, you know, you're looking for that edge. And because it's a day-to-day thing and you're wanting to make sure that you show up and perform any little, you know, performance boost that you can get, you you might consider. And so um, he was talking about how rampant um, Adderall and different opioids and stuff like that were to manage their pain. Um, You mentioned a little bit in some of the stuff that I've seen about you, uh, taking Adderall, how pervasive is it in major league baseball, not just Adderall, but, but any type of, um, uh, you know, performance enhancing substances. Yeah. I mean, that was the extent of anything I ever took um, other than maybe a federal when it was still legal and over the counter, um, you know, never any steroids or HGH and stuff for myself. And I definitely don't want to speak about anybody else in terms of Adderall usage, but, um, cause I really just, it was something that I felt I needed and, and there's quite a few hoops to jump through. I think people, um, it's a lot different than, uh, cause I remember going and getting it after my career was, uh, after I had retired and I felt like there was some things that I might needed to, to help me with. And, um, it was just kind of like show up and they, they wrote a prescription, which is a whole nother issue to talk about. And, right. yeah, but you know, and during my career, you know, when I, when I was on it and it was the first time that I had taken it and some people had recommended it and we went to the psychiatrist and then you got actually, there's only a, at the time, there was only two people in major league baseball that were allowed to say yes or no on you. You know, it wasn't like you're going to your local doctor down the street. Like you actually had to fly to either Arizona or Florida. So huh. there was quite a few hoops, but, um, you know, it was something that really, really benefited me. And, um, you know, there was a lot of other anxiety issues and like fears of flying. Like imagine having a job. There was a, there's like three years where I was scared to death to fly. Like, oh my gosh. I think that's might've been, I might've wrote about that on, on one of the posts at some point where it was like, the only thing that kept me on the plane was the fear of being humiliated in front of all my teammates. Wow. And that was greater than the fear of dying. That was the fear of like, I'm thinking I'm having a heart attack. Wow. Like that's, when you talk about all the mass that you mentioned in the beginning, like that was a really big mass where like, I'm sitting there, I'm freaking out. Like everything in my body is telling me to run off this plane. I'm having to do it every four days. Oh, brutal. Brutal. (laughs) You know, we fly every four days and um, for two years, it was just, it was, it'd be a constant panic attack for, you know, a couple hours. And, um, so yeah, for my own story, I mean, there was, you know, the Adderall really did help with that, but also, um, you know, there was a lot of, you know, too much alcohol, like after games, you know, trying to calm things down or, um, you know, before flights. And, um, you know, that was something that, uh, looking back on it, wasn't uh, a lot of great decisions, but been able to take a lot of the lessons from it and, and seek help in other areas. And, um, you know, grateful that I was able to experience that and be able to speak about it and help other people when they go through it. Yeah. Um, at what point, so, so you got signed with the Rangers first, is that right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then you ended up, um, I, I forget if you were traded somewhere else, but you ended up in Japan at some point. Mm-hmm. What, what was it like playing over there? <laughs> it was, uh, I grew to love it. And, uh, but the initial, uh, six weeks, couple months was just the biggest shock. Um, just the culture shock. <laughs> you know, I can't it, even imagine seeing you walking around there. I mean, you were, you're twice the size of most of the people over there. I mean, I, I, 
It's great. Like I, I absolutely love, and that towards the end of my career, I was trying really hard to get myself back over there with my family. And um, so at the time, you know, I'm 28 or 29 years old. I'm a single guy. A lot of the guys who make the decision to go over there, they're our family based and they have their families and their kids. They bring them with them. Um, Cause it's a great opportunity. Not only still play at a, you know, probably it's, I can definitely consider it a higher level than AAA. You know, it's huh. definitely a step below the major leagues, but it's a great level to play in. You get it's the, next to the major leagues. You're going to get paid the absolute best. Actually, there's a lot of guys in the major leagues that will, will get more to go over there and play. So yeah. it's a great financial opportunity for a lot of people to go and do that. And, um, but it's interesting because it, it reminds me of when you're young and you're coming up through the professional levels and um, to see the transition from a lot of the young kids who come from Latin America and, um, you know, I have a lot of experience. I think I've been living five years of my life between the Dominican, Puerto Rico, Mexico, just about everywhere in Mexico. Mexico is a pretty big place. Hmm. But to see them adjust to our culture, which, um, you know, is a transition for them. But when, when I would go to play in Latin America, it was more laid back. It was more easy going. Right. And, um, for me then to go to Japan where everything's a little bit more serious, strict, uptight. It's like there's all these unwritten rules that are different about culture and you didn't find them out until you broke them. And usually they didn't tell you you broke them until mm. like weeks later. And you're like, why are you letting me do that? Like, you know, like the translator would come up to me a couple weeks later. Like, you're not supposed to do that. <laughs> like, what's an example of that? Oh, I don't know. Um, I'm trying to think of anything that's not gross, but, um, <laughs> well, I, my, I, my ex-wife is Latin and I, first time I went down there, they introduced me, she introduced me to one of her friends, one of her girlfriends and, and they all started giggling and laughing and I'm like, what? And they're like, well, she was expecting that you were going to kiss her on the cheek. And I was like, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. And then we, we go to her house and I got in, the maid answered the door and I go in and I give the maid a kiss and they all, you know, they all say, oh, what are you doing? Like, you don't, no, it's, you know, it's a social thing. So yeah, I've been there a little bit and just embarrassingly, you know, the, the, the white yeah. go going through and screwing up. But I imagine you probably had a few of those things, just social things that you didn't know about or whatever. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, but the, uh, in, in the way they play the game and their approach to the work ethic and the practice was a lot different. Um, you know, the first summer was a big challenge because I just got sent down from the major leagues. Um, I go over there hoping to do well and maybe get an opportunity to come back. And so my heart wasn't fully committed to the Japanese way and in the way of, uh, you know, creating a home in Japan because you're there for like nine months mm -hmm. out of the year. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, Japan is really home and you come home and you just take this little break for three months and then you go back and, um, you know, the second year, I really loved it. Didn't have as many opportunities to get in the lineup um, with some new additions that they had. But, you know, that second year, I really loved it. I loved the people. I loved the food. I loved learning the language. And, um, you know, it was something that I really wanted to go back. One of do. the things that um, really impressed me when Ichiro started playing was I think he had struck out one time and, and he like gently laid his bat down or something like that. And the reporter asked him like, do you ever get frustrated and throw your bat or whatever? And he said, it's, he said something along the lines of like, it's not the bat's fault. And, and you know, like just the, the cultural difference. I mean, such a huge cultural clash between, yeah. you know, the standard American or Western player that, you know, is big and braggadocious and, and oftentimes, I mean, obviously you have your humble guys too, but um, there's, there seems to be more of a, you know, you gotta, you, you know, you hit a home run, you're going to watch it and you're going to walk or whatever, but 
I think in the Japanese culture, that's more of showing up the picture and it's disrespectful, right? Or, or am I wrong on that? Actually, it's very interesting. There's two great things about the Japanese culture when it comes to baseball. Um, One is just this insane work ethic. And I think it's really in the culture of, of Japan in general, but it carries over to baseball is that the, the practice is, is as important as the game. So when they focus on the process and every day, I mean, they are going full speed with the practice and they not only is the, the, the pregame workout twice as long, um, they show up early, they stay late. Like, um, in the hotel rooms after dinner, they all meet in like the banquet room and they just take dry swings with their bat and they do wow. the honor and they respect their bat and keep it completely clean. You know, we're all pine tarred up. Even when we're over there in Japan, we got sticky and pine tar all over it. And they're, right. they're like, they want it. They want to use the sticky, but they're like, how do you take it off? I'm like, you don't take it off. Like that's the whole <laughs> point. And um, so it makes them unbelievable at the fundamentals of the game. Hmm. And that's why, um, you know, Team Japan, when they do the, you know, the WBC, the World Baseball Classic, they tend to do really well because they right. function so well as a team. There's such a, um, you know, harmony is so important to them within the team. They tend to do really well uh, in those big tournaments. And, uh, but you know what I was thinking too was how much more exciting of an experience going to a Japanese game is. Um, they, the, the music, um, in the outfield and the bleachers, they all sing during the game. When the hitters are up, they all have a special song. Everyone sings in harmony, like in this big chorus. Like it's beautiful. We had one of the elite hitters in Japan, and like the entire stadium would jump up and down when there was runners in scoring position. Wow. And the whole like this huge dome, forty, fifty thousand people, the thing would shake. And they said it actually shows up on the Richter scale in Japan <laughs> when when Inaba san is is hitting. There's wow. it just and everyone's jumping. It was, it was like one of the coolest moments. Um, and I got to see that quite a few times, but what I wanted to mention kind of what you said though, is there's an understanding in, in the baseball too, that they are entertainers. And um, I think it's something that's really cool. So the bat flips, um, a lot more theatrics are involved in the game, but it's totally accepted because you're there not only to go out there and play hard, play to win, but you're there for the fans to be an entertainer as well. So you actually see a lot more of that stuff over there. You definitely see a lot more in Latin America. And, um, you know, I think there's a lot of cool things that could be incorporated or to help the game evolve. But Oh, that's surprising. I didn't realize that. <clears throat> that's neat. So um, at one point, though, uh, it sounds like in my research of you and your journey, at one point while you were over there, uh, was it the pressure or what? I don't know what, but you shared how, if you're willing to share um, maybe one of the darkest moments that you faced uh, and, and being on the building in, in Japan, is that, are you willing to share that story? Yeah, man, I've written so much. I don't even remember what I've written or what I haven't written, but well, I know I saw it in a video. Um, oh, it was in the video. Okay. Yeah. I'm an open book. I, I talk about anything I've been through. Okay. So <laughs> uh, yeah. And you know what, what was interesting was, um, you know, and I didn't quite mention too, the hard transition was, um, you know, so I was, I was on Adderall for a few years and um, it is illegal in Japan. Mm. And um, which was interesting as part of their process of bringing me over was, you know, we heard about this 
Um, you know, we've seen your, your medical files. Like we have, we don't have Adderall. It's illegal. We have Ritalin. And uh, so it was interesting because, okay, well, we'll get you on Ritalin. I was like, all right, I don't, whatever. So we go over and then they're like, oh, we can't do Ritalin because it's only for 18 and under. And um, so basically I show up and like, I'm, I'm going through withdrawals and uh, for the first six weeks or so. And that was kind of that time where it was like, here I am. I feel like a total failure at, at not producing at the major league level. I got designated for, you know, I, I got optioned down three years in a row. Now I'm designated, which means I, I can't go back up with the, the Texas Rangers. So I go to Japan feeling like a total failure. I feel sick every day. Um, I'm adjusting to this new culture. It's not going the way that I want it to go. Like my life isn't going any way that I want it to go. And yeah, there was a very dark moment of being like, you know, looking off the balcony because they put me in a, an apartment. I don't know how many stories, somewhere between 10 and 12. And it was just like, it was the first time I really ever entertained that idea. It was like, Dude, life's not working out the way that I want it to. So like, what's the point? Yeah. And, um, you know, there's another time in Japan. The next year was a huge transition in a lot of different life because very unexpectedly, unexpectedly, I was having a son. And, um, you know, that turned into the greatest story between uh, not only he and I's relationship, but with his mother, it would be my, my wife and then my former wife and now my best friend and someone that I still continue to, to grow and have this incredible relationship with. So, um, yeah, there was plenty of dark times in Japan and dark times in my life, but I see that, like they're the absolute greatest victories and moments in my life when I look back on it. And that's why I speak so passionately about them when I do get the opportunity. You talked earlier about the mindset and <clears throat> even as a teenager, you know, identifying the importance and value of the mindset. And I think sometimes, first of all, I 100% agree with you, but I think sometimes it can be a slippery slope because you can get so much in your head about, um, you know, comparing <laughs> yourself to yourself, you know, or what you think you should be doing or whatever. And then, you know, you're down the rabbit hole. And, um, you know, sometimes being a mindset guy, I sometimes envy um, guys that don't think about it so much. I'm like, ah, just take action, shut up and just, and I was like, ah, you know, so I know that, that you can, you can go to that darker place sometimes that, um, that perhaps other people don't entertain as much. But um, so how did you get out of that? What, what do you think? Uh, so obviously having your son was a big part of that. Um, I think I, we briefly met many years ago uh, when, uh, when we were doing some personal development stuff uh, or I met uh, Brandy and I, I, I don't know if you were just coming out of it then or what, but I remember like you were turning the corner. Do you remember what it was that really sort of spurred that pivot? At, th at that dark time? <laughs> like, so many peaks and plateaus and valleys and um, yeah, yeah I, not necessarily that one. I, I think that one, that, that one was the big one. I think for me, um, because going into it, um, I realized that the dark times were just part of it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah. I stopped beating myself up for being in the dark times. Yeah. And I, I started to find out that was the real gift. And, and so much I'd gone through was like, it's just a dark time. It'll pass. Yep. And, um, and I found myself with that kind of mentality and that belief that, you know, when, when really tough tragedies, real tough things have happened over the last couple of years since that point, since we met where it's like, it's a gift. There's a, there's a gift coming from this. Like mm -hmm. 
I might know it tomorrow. I might know it in a couple months. I might not know it for seven more years, but there's a gift to it and um, it's all going to be okay. And so I think there's been a, a quite a few things that have not turned out the way that I wanted to, or um, just life's tragedies with family or health or other things that are going on. And like, they don't hit as hard. Like you, you feel it and you go through it and you just trust that there's a gift and you're going to look back on it someday and to be able to share that message with so many different people now is the best part of, of that learning experience. But, you know, the one thing I did want to bring up too, because I think you say something really great because, you know, that's where I see myself now over the last six to six months, the last year and becoming more vocal about it over the last probably like 30 days, especially, but I feel like mindset, mental development, um, it's very important. There's a very like specific stage to it. Um, but then at some point too, I think we need to evolve and start trusting our self and trusting our own information. Um, you know, the, the, the quote, I think it was Tony Robbins said something along the lines. I'm not sure where he got it from, but it was like, you know, we're, we're drowning in information, but starving for wisdom or something like yeah. that. And I really see that for so many people that are at least in my circle where you keep searching for the answers, you keep reading all the books, you're doing the programs, you're doing all the trainings, but it comes, I think the next step for many is, is getting quiet and listening to their own information, whether you want to call it your gut, your intuition, your soul, your guides, whatever it is, source, God, creator, um, getting quiet and following that information because that stuff is what's tailored and specific for you. And you might take bits and pieces of it from everywhere else, but it's going to be put in your way. Like when things really started opening up for me and this, this next little jump that I've been through over the last six months, it was relying on that stuff. It was saying stuff that I knew was coming to me. And then I would think myself out of it in the past, but going with what, what I felt right away in a situation, even though, it was the exact opposite of how I was trained or maybe it was the exact opposite of what this belief that I said people were supposed to hear or what you were supposed to do in a situation. But trusting that, it just seems like the rewards from following that guidance, it just continue to grow and continue to get stronger and more clear and more obvious when I hear them. Hmm. Um, this might be a good time to share. You made a post yesterday uh, on Facebook that I'd love to just share real quick um, with the listeners. You said, over the last few months, I've gotten really clear who I am, what I want for myself, what I want for my family, what I want for the world from power and truth, peak state and play like a beast, which are two of your brands. Um, I found they all aligned with one simple truth that life is about relationships with self, with God, with business, with family, with friends, with a romantic partner, with time, with money. It's all relationships. And although our problems have a thousand stories, there's actually only one problem fear. Every problem that is <clears throat> that a person or the world faces, however you choose to, dis to describe its cause, the core root of it is fear. And until fear is replaced with love, the solution won't last. So over the last few months, I've gotten really clear. Love is always the answer. Um, it's powerful. That's a powerful declaration right there. Thank you. I read it on a bumper sticker. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a that's a <laughs> lot of words to fit on a tiny little bumper sticker. No, uh, uh, it was just uh, I I like to take a walk each day down the street and then in this little open park. We had a beautiful park with a big path that goes around it, and it was just something that um, you know some days for some reason I'm on a I'm on a walk for exercise, but I'll take a journal with me, and, and 
I have those feelings I should take a journal. And that was one where I was halfway through the walk. It just really came to me because it, it has a lot to do with the fear and the love aspect where a few days ago, like I really want to start taking a stand about love. Hmm. And, um, but that's like my fear is, can I be really someone that just talks about love? And, and, you know, it's like, can you build a business is, is has one of these things. Can you really, you know, so many people, they want, you know, they want more money or they want a partner or they want more sex or they want a nicer car, you know, all these, these different needs. Like if you can show someone that you can deliver those things, um, it seems like, you know, they'll, they'll line up. But I was like, I want to be really authentic and I want to be in integrity with what I'm here to do in the world and what I'm here to help other people see, see for themselves. Cause that's why I also feel like it's not even about being a coach or a teacher or an instructor anyway. It's just creating space in these groups where people can really have the freedom or have the clarity to listen to what they're being told. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm kind of all over the place on this explanation, but you know, that was a huge post for me. Um, cause I know a couple of days ago I was trying to write something where it was like, you know, love is the hardest thing for me to write about. Like that's the one word I can write about high performance. I can write about how to be successful in high pressure situations. Cause that's my background. That's my training. I've helped people do that. But like at the end of it, it's come, you know, the last few months it's getting really clear to me that like all our problems are f- out of fear. They're out of so much of the world that I deal with. It's about not good enough. Yeah. You know, if I'm not good enough, I'm not going to be loved. And, um, you know, if we really just get conscious to, um, that it is fear and we can start finding the love in the situation and love being the answer, like things soften, they relax and they begin to, the, the floodgates begin to open and so many different things. And it is, everything is a relationship. You know, if you have problems with time, that's your relationship with time. You think you don't have enough of it or, you know, you know, if someone has more, I don't know what it is, but everything is a relationship. Every problem I feel like for me, in my opinion, in my experience is, is just out of fear. Mm-hmm. Love is the answer. Love is the answer. How does, how does that fit on a practical level? Um, you just gave an example, like with time, but um, somebody comes to you, they're in dire straits. Help me out, Jason. How do I, how does somebody tap into that love? And then how does that manifest into tangible real results? You know, the, the first thing that came to me, And, um, you know, to give you an example from my own life and what I've been through is, um, you know, this is, this all happened before I was even talking about it and really describing it a little bit better the way that I do, but it's like, you know, going through the, the separation and the divorce with my former wife, um, we, we had all the issues, all the problems that 90% of, you know, breakdowns happen and occur but I remember being very aware of like just there's so many things I can point and blame and like well if you'd have done this then maybe I would have done this or it could have worked but just really taking the time to 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 know that my my reactions and my blame like that's all fear um and really seeing her and I remember getting really clear and just like one day like really looking at her and just seeing like all she wants is love Mm-hmm. that's what she's scared that she's not having it. She's not getting it mm. um, in her life, in this relationship, whatever it is. And just really seeing who she is, is just a person that just all they want to be is loved. Right. And you know, that's been a new game that I started playing with myself this last couple of weeks is to go somewhere, whether I'm at a restaurant, um, 
whether I'm at a restaurant, whether I'm at a grocery store, wherever it is, and just like taking a moment and getting present with the people around me and seeing like, what is it that they really want yeah. in their life? And like, that's all that keeps coming is they just want to be loved. Like mm-hmm. I could, I could judge them and criticize them for what they're wearing um, or how they're acting or how they're behaving. But at the end of it, like to let all that calm down be like, no, they just want to be loved. <laughs> You know, like, and they're either, they're either acting or behaving or dressing that way because they're trying to get it or because they're, they're scared to death of it. And they're trying to protect themselves from being not scared of love, but they're, they're scared of being hurt. Mm-hmm. And, um, I don't know, that's, that was kind of what came to me. Um, this huge love is my mission type thing is, is new to me and I don't have all the correct answers at the moment, but you know, it's part of the spiritual vision. It's like, it comes to you in pieces. Totally. <laughs> That's what I share with people. It's like the more that you, you take the steps and you follow the path, the more that you're going to be revealed and, and trusted with more. It's, you know, following a, a life purpose or a spiritual vision is such a different thing than a life vision. It's so easy to sit there and say, this is the life that I want and I'm going to draw it all out. I'm going to create the picture and then I'm going to reverse engineer it on how to get there. Um, you know, which is one way of doing things. I've, been doing it for years and I still play around with that type of stuff but like for me the spiritual vision and like what am I the effect you know what what's the cause that's going on in the world that I'm the effect that I'm supposed to come here and be the solution for and um, so much what's been coming especially strong the last couple weeks is the idea behind love and and giving healing to so many people that you know, good is good enough you know the, the idea that there's not enough in the world I'm not enough I don't have enough and really showing people that the more that they see that good is good enough, then they can become great at what they want to do. Wow. That's beautiful. Um, What's sort of mind blowing too, is when you tap into that and you realize, I mean, I've I've experienced this from time to time and I'm not, I don't mean to profess that I'm always this way by any stretch. Um, But you do get glimpses of that where you tap into that and you realize it's always been there. Like it's yeah. always accessible. It's always been there. And then when you tap into that, um, that, that energy of love and abundance, and then you just, and you look at the world through that lens and you do see, I think it was uh, Byron Katie, if I remember correctly, who said every action is either an expression of love or a cry for love. Mm-hmm. And you're right. Like you just do people watch and you just see people and you can just see that, you know, they're, they're hurting or they're carrying a load or they're going through something. I was driving the other day and, and my, I said, Hey, kids look at that woman right there and she was crying she was just sitting there driving and she was crying and and then I, I was actually going to try to get her attention but she ended up you know turning off but we're all going through this journey uh, often in isolation um and i think relate you, you brought the idea of relationships up that the deepest levels of love that i've ever experienced and the and the most profound like growth that i've ever experienced has always been in relationship to somebody else um, oh yeah and I mean, while there's certainly work I can do on my own and there's been awakenings and love of self, et cetera, but like we're social animals, I think for a reason, you know, um, it, it, it's a pretty profound thing when you tap into it. Yeah. That's, that's great that you bring that up. Cause I mean, that is the truth. It is, it is in the relationship that we grow and too often we, we hit some kind of fear issue and we decide to protect ourselves or we try to run away, but to stay present with that fear and, and really take a moment to ask yourself, what's, what am I afraid of? Like, what am I fearing that might happen in this situation? And, you know, for me, 
like I mentioned, went through the separation and divorce for oh, it's probably three-ish years ago. And to really finally be in, in a committed relationship now for the first time over the last six months and to have that type of mindset, it's been unbelievable because both of us, I feel like the first three months that we're in the relationship, every single day we had something to run away from. Mm. <laughs> like it was, it was big, it was intense. And we had a very clear calling that it was a, there was a bigger spiritual mission that we were going to create with that company with power and truth. And there were so many reasons every single day, but we were both very present. I know I can only speak probably more for myself, but like every day fear would come up and I had to sit there and like, just stay and be like the lighthouse with it. be present, stay open, keep shining my light mm-hmm. and really just see at the end of it. Like I'm either trying to protect myself from being hurt or how she is acting, behaving, what she's saying, she's trying to protect herself from being, being hurt. And I'm not going to allow that stuff to go on to make me want to run away either. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're bringing up some pretty high level stuff um, that I think the average person doesn't know about or think about, or even aware of um, when it comes to relationships, because relationships is, as I'm sure you've heard before, it's the source of the greatest joy, but also the source of the greatest pain. And um, that idea of presence, I think is such a big one for the men that I work with for the, the coaching that I do and, and in their relationships, most men aren't really present. We're in a very like problem solution mindset, trying mm-hmm. to fix it, whatever. Um, tell me, I, I'm sort of curious that we're on this sort of track of relationships, which isn't exactly where I thought we'd be going with this, but it's kind of an interesting thread. What is your um, definition of a man? What does it mean to be a man? Ooh. <laughs> Got two little boys, professional athlete. You certainly had, uh, achievement and success um, beyond what most people's standards are, um, which often is related to being a man and producing. What would you say is it that makes a man a man? Jeez, I I don't know if I've actually really sat down and and, des- and described it. I know I've probably written on things that have, that have come through me, but to have a a great answer right on the spot, um, you know, I know I mentioned the lighthouse. Um, that's a metaphor that I really love because I do feel like uh, with a lighthouse, there is stability. Um, there is a light that's shining and I do feel like that light is love. And um, you know, whether it's coming in through God and source, whether it's just coming from yourself, that that light is love and to be open, open, shining that love, regardless of what's going on in life. Like that for me is what a lighthouse is. Yeah. Um, you know, you could have, calm seas, um, the ocean be calm and peaceful. And then one minute, I mean, it's crashing on the lighthouse, the winds are blowing, but to, to stay the exact same, to, to be stable amidst any storm, um, shining that light. I know, I think I, I wrote about it as being, you know, you know, feminine energy can be a lot like that ocean where it, it changes course really quickly. And, and the ships maybe like my children, but like, you're always there. You're always present. Mm-hmm. You're given direction. Um, and just knowing you can be counted on that. There's trust and there's safety. Um, and I feel like a lot of men get caught up in the storm where they take the storm for what it is too literal sometimes. And I know in, in my relationship and even with my own children, you know, it's, it's, it's the same thing. Like they are going to say things and, and do things to basically get a rise out of me. Right. And see how I react. And, um, and I, it's like, 
I, I hear, I, I'm fully present, I'm fully listening, I'm fully caring about what they have to say. But it, in many situations, it's almost like one in ear, one ear, and out the other, and I'm just gonna love you with whatever you say. And um, I think that's been my biggest breakthrough, not only in a romantic relationship, but as a father too, because my sons are young, they're seven and nine years old. I mean, they're gonna turn on me like in the ocean in any minute too. Yeah. And, um, and it's important, I think, it's coming to me right now to say, um, cause I was having a conversation with this with someone the other day, but it's like, realize that, that people who feel safest with you, um, are going to probably act the craziest <laughs> because you are safe. That and, and I, I, the, the conversation that I had with someone the other day was like, you know, like I'm always giving, I'm always loving people say things, they do things. Um, they obviously don't love me or, you know, they don't, they aren't grateful for what I have to, to give them. I'm like, I mean, there's other things going on here, but like they do do it not because they don't love you. They're acting and doing and saying those things because they do know that you love them mm. because it's a safe place. Mm. You know, we, we, we're our truest self. We express our emotions or our anger um, to the people that when it's safe, not when uh, it's. I love that reframe. Um, because most people and myself included many times when you're dealing with the turbulence of the storm, um, we often tend to, I made this mistake for decades, uh, putting my sense of value and putting my sense of, uh, own self-worth and validation in whether or not the ocean was calm or choppy or storm. And so if there was a storm and the ocean was choppy, it was like, Oh, I must be failing. I must be doing something wrong. And, um, quite a different experience when you go, no, 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 no. There is no logical reason why the ocean is calm or choppy. It, it just is. And yeah. uh, it's a perfect it's metaphor, beautiful. I think, for, for feminine energy. And then the lighthouse being masculine energy really anchored in regardless of whatever the storm or the, whatever the ocean is doing, that sense of presence, not putting your sense of worth on what the measurement of the ocean is, but rather just being present to whatever is. Uh, is a really powerful metaphor, but I, I screwed that one up for so long. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's been a huge breakthrough. I was the same way. And yeah. you know, what I've learned and grown in, in relationships over the years, it's like, you know, there's a part of me that I, I want to see my partner happy and, and, and joyous. And, um, but I also, every time it's the opposite end of that, whether, um, there's a lot of sadness, a lot of things coming out from other experiences or whether it's sadness with me or anger with me, like I just kind of on the inside kind of smile and be like, right. she feels safe with me. This is great. Right. Like, and in the ocean, the ocean is beautiful because it is like, it is beautiful because it can be happy one moment and it's beautiful because it can be sad in the next 100%. moment. And I think the more that, you know, there's so much talk today too about masculine and feminine energy. And I think such a huge part of masculine energy is learning to appreciate feminine energy as is and not trying to hold it to its own standards or its own expectations, but just love it and appreciate it for what it is. That's the beauty of it. Absolutely. Yeah. There's, when you tap into that, you, you see how beautiful the storm is and, is. and, and acknowledge. It doesn't like crashing waves. Crashing waves are beautiful. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you know, when I think of women, when I think of feminine energy in its, in its essence, it is love. And, Love has no, love has no boundary. And so the, the you know, the, there is, <laughs> whereas the lighthouse to me 
and mask to me, the spiritual sense of, of masculinity is truth, clarity, mm-hmm. precision, focus, destination, vision. Right. Um, and when you bring those two together, you, you encompass all things. You have the boundless connection of love and empathy and, and beauty, but you also have the focus and progress of masculine energy to, to, you know, uh, push forward. Um, really powerful metaphors, I think, especially when you have young kids, uh, Speaking of which, so is your focus with your work more on younger kids or are you working with uh, adults as well? Well, with the, the power and truth groups that we're running now, I mean, it's, it's all adults. It's stuff where we're working on this fear and this love stuff in relationship to any type of things. Um, with the work with athletes, I mean, I feel like all athletes at this point at my age, they're all kids. <laughs> you know, I start working with a, a, a young professional hitter. He's 24 years old. For me, I'm starting to feel like that's a kid. Yep. You know, the first few years of my business with athletes, it was a lot of in the, the 12 to 18 range. Um, that's just the way it seemed to take off where I was living in Texas. And, um, you know, it's um, – the age now is, I think the youngest currently is 14 up to the ages of 42 in terms of the, the work that I do with athletes, um, you know, and now more getting that stuff kind of automated where there's a lot of programs going on the visualization, play like a beast where like we can do a whole other segment on me talking about play like a beast and how much I love those visualizations and the impact. Cause here I created something for the athletes that I couldn't have time with because um, things have grown so much over the last couple of years where there was a lot of, you know, 12, 13, 14 year old uh, ball players, their parents reaching out to me to, to help them. And so I created this visualization program um, for them. And then I found out that the parents were starting to listen to it and utilize it as well. Hmm. And then I, found out, I, I started using my own seven year old son through the program and he's loving it. And then I started finding out that I could put him in timeout, you know, when he's having an undesired behavior and I put him to calm down in his room. Well, you know, when you put a kid in the room, like 90% of the time, if you can remember your own experience with your own kids, it's like you go in there and you beat yourself up or you get angry at your parent right. or you, I, I know my oldest son, like I could just hear him in, in the room beating himself up or, you know, why would we, we, we send him in the room and tell him to think about their, think about what they did. Right. <laughs> like, you know, and, and a lot of people who are at advanced level of mindset, you realize if you just keep thinking about what you did, you're really reconditioning yourself to do it even more. Yeah. Um, so I know like a week or two ago, we, we started putting them in on their little timeouts um, and playing one of the audios that really has to do with teaching about a crocodile and you're visualizing a crocodile and, and how the crocodile, regardless of the environment, like he finds a way to adapt and survive. And so I teach a very powerful lesson in there about taking charge of your own thoughts, feelings, and emotions. There's actually a video I was thinking about posting later today where, you know, my seven-year-old listening, you hear the words to it all, but um, I don't even know how I got started talking in a play like a beast, but that was something that came to me. But so um, g- it, give me the- everybody. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> I said everybody, whether with right. the athletes, it's, it's all different ages with our company, Power and Truth. Um, you know, there's been family men, entrepreneurs, um, a lot of women coming in for relationship stuff, men coming in for relationship. It's Sarah, my partner with it, my girlfriend. She is also a very, very powerful, energetic healer. And um, she does amazing things with creating the space um, for people to get real clarity. And, um, you know, one of my jobs in that group is really um, to keep everybody grounded, to be that lighthouse in that while so much is moving, so much of the emotion is going on to really create a safe place and be like, 
this problem isn't a problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe okay. Let me tell you why. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, uh, you you look like a different person than when I first met you. I mean, you 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 look younger. You look like yeah. I mean, it's 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 crazy how much that that weight that we carry when we're stressed, yeah. when we're dealing with whatever life uh, gives you, it just, it ages you like your whole demeanor and everything. And, and when you're not, when you're freed from that, how much lighter, you know, you, you feel, you look, et cetera. Um, well, very good, man. What, uh, if somebody's interested to find out more about you, what you're doing, what you're up to, where could they go online? Is there a place that they, a central place that you like to send people to? Yeah. I mean, obviously my favorite where I'm on every day is, is Facebook. Um, read a friend request or send a follow or following to, uh, Jason bots. Um, you know, there still is the Jason bots peak state.com website address that I do with the athletes, uh, power and truth, five, five, five.com. I'm currently building and I'll be a huge part of my focus this afternoon. I love doing things all on my own. And, And like we said, like, over these years, I tried so many things with the other business where it's like you, you follow what all the experts say on how to do it and, and you take a little bit of that information and then you got to really follow your own gut on what's going to work for you. Mm-hmm. And, um, so walking my talk on, on building the website as, as well on that. So, nice. But JasonBotsPeakState.com and uh, Facebook is always a great place too because I'm in there daily posting and, and communicating with everybody. So Fantastic. Uh, Jason, man, thank you so much for your time today. It was That was I told you before we started the call, I'm like, I don't know why. I just feel like this is going to be a really good call. And, you know, I didn't know that we were going to get into to love and relationships as much as we did. But, you know, it's, it's actually genuinely refreshing um, to have a conversation with another masculine guy about the topic of love because it's, it's not something that, you know, dudes typically talk about. You know, hey, let's get together and talk about love. We don't, we don't typically do that. But um, it's, a, it's a certainly worthwhile conversation to have. And, and when you – put it all together with the masculine power within that and the lighthouse is uh, it's, it's a profoundly powerful concept to think about and, and to carry forward into your life. So thank you for that. Uh, my pleasure. All right, man. Maybe we can do another one sometime soon. I'd love to keep talking about all the stuff you're up to. Absolutely. Anytime, right, Peter. Thanks. Thank you.